Good to see all of you today. Glad that you have joined us. Uh, just really looking forward to today all week. Love being in worship with everybody and then uh, getting into the word. If you weren't here last week, uh, we are in a mini-series right now on Saul uh, from the Bible, the first king of Israel. He is the king who started the monarch. Uh, and we started last week with a sermon on obedience. Uh, and this week we're going to be speaking on faith from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now we don't have our screens with us today. Uh, thank you for coming back. We didn't have them last week either. I'm glad that uh, that did not depend on whether you're here in church on Sunday or not. Uh, so you can read with me on your phone if you have a Bible app. If you brought your physical Bible, you get, uh, as my Spanish teacher would always say to me, cinco puntos for coming to class, prepared, good job. Um, just make sure you tell that to Michael the archangel before he lets you into heaven. <laughs> uh, but we'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And if you'll be following along with your phone or your Bible, uh, I'll be kind of skipping verses here and there. But I'll help you uh, to follow along with me. But just to give a quick recap, uh, last week we talked, like I said, about obedience and then at the end of the chapter, we read about how Saul had disobeyed God and Samuel gave the proclamation or the judgment for Saul, which was that God was ripping away the kingdom and he was going to give that kingdom to a good neighbor of his. In chapter 16, so that was chapter 15, in chapter 16, we see that the good neighbor that Samuel was talking about was David, uh, the second king of Israel, the more infamous king uh, because from the lineage of David, we have uh, our king Jesus uh, comes from. And so after David is anointed as a young teen um, to be king of Israel, he doesn't actually get to become king right away. It becomes a very long journey. And so in chapter 17, which is where we're picking up on our story, we're going to read a, a very famous story, but we're going to look at it from the, lang the lens of Saul uh, in this story today. And so what happens here is, uh, the Philistines have come to invade Israel again. Uh, the neighboring country, one of the neighboring countries of Israel were the Philistines, and they were constantly attacking uh, Israel. If you read the book of Judges, you see that Israel had issues with their neighbors constantly, and the Philistines were one of the biggest issues that they had. And so let's jump in and read chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azka, and Amphistamin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. So what happens here is the armies are gathering for war. On one side, the Philistines gather, they're on a mountain. On the other side, Israel gathers their armies, they're on another mountain. In between, they have a valley, which is a perfect place for them to fight. Then what happens, we're going to skip some verses, but in the verses that we're skipping, the Philistines send out their champion. Uh, you may have guessed by now who their champion is. It is Goliath. The Philistines send out this massive huge man. The Bible describes him as being over nine feet tall. His breastplate alone 
is 80 pounds, 80 pounds. See, his shield is so big that he needs another human to carry his shield for him, and that's the only thing that human can do because it is so heavy. Uh, this was a big guy. And so they send out Goliath to fight, uh, and Goliath is essentially saying, is there anybody in Israel that wants to do battle with me? And whoever wins the battle will win the war. So if we skip down to verse 10, we see what the Goliath says to Israel. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Saul arrays his army. The Philistines array theirs. They all get together. And then they see Goliath come out. This nine-foot-something huge beast of a man. And everybody gets sad. They look at him, and they look at this obstacle, and essentially the army just loses heart. They're like, there is no way we are going to beat this guy. Nobody is going to be able to beat him. Uh, so... We don't know what we're going to do right now. It says after this that for 40 days, Goliath came out. And every morning, he insulted Saul and the army of Israel and therefore God. It's interesting, this scenario, because I feel like this scenario is a scenario we see very often in our lives. And it goes something like this. God gives us a calling. He gives us a direction. He gives us a path forward in our life, and we get really excited about it. What we start to do is we, we pull out our planner maybe, uh, open up a new Google Doc and begin to write or a Google Excel Doc. And we start thinking about, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray daily. I'm going to confess often. I'm going to read X amount of pages from the Bible. I'm going to make this part of my daily rhythms, my routines. We, we get excited. We kind of array everything in order and we prepare that we are going to move forward. We know that it's not going to be easy. It is going to be war. It is going to be a hard time. But we get ourselves ready for battle. Then the obstacle comes in our way. Maybe that obstacle is resources. Maybe that obstacle is a difficult person. Anybody ever have to deal with a difficult person in your life? I don't know what church you're in if you've never had to deal with that. Maybe it's a disbelieving friend that you share them, hey, God put this on my heart. And they laugh at you. Or they smile and nod, but you know what's going on in the back of their head. And this happens all too often, I think, to us, where we are ready to move forward with something in our heart, a God-given dream, a God-given direction, something that we read in Scripture and we think, man, I'm going to follow that. Maybe something that we've heard in a sermon and we say, I'm going to live out that way moving forward. And then we have good intentions. We, we get everything ready. We plan. We start to make ourselves ready, our life ready. But then we get to the obstacle... You know, I actually didn't think it was going to cost this much. Or this person spoke really negative. They didn't think I had it in me to do this. So maybe I 
can't do this, or, you know, I, I really wanted to do this, but I'm having a hard time navigating around this circumstance or this person, and then we give up. We let every day that obstacle just be in the front of our head. You ever have something that you want to do and there's something, for me, I have a to-do list. You know, my life is run by a to-do list. If I, if it, essentially, if you ever ask me to do something and you don't see me pull out my phone to put it in my to-do list, just pretend like you never asked me to do it at the end of the day. Uh, because it will not get done, I will forget, um, and probably five minutes after our conversation, uh, it will be in la-la land. It will never make it uh, past me. And so for me, sometimes there's a place where I'm ready to do something. I put this to-do on my to-do list, and I think I need to accomplish this tomorrow. And then I go tomorrow to accomplish it, and I think that is going to be a lot more difficult than I thought. And so something happens that really annoys me in my to-do list is every day when I open it, it has my overdue task in red uh, at the top of my to-do list. And there have literally been months have gone by where I see the first thing I see every morning is that red oversized task in the overdue section on my to-do list. But I always immediately go, why did I stop? Because this obstacle, whatever it was, came and I became disheartened. I thought, man, I'm not going to accomplish it. I'm not going to be able to do it. And then really that to-do I wake up mocks me every day. It just laughs at me like, yep, do you see completion date was January 15th and now it's June 16th and you still haven't completed me. You still haven't got me done because you're, I don't know, whatever it is. Maybe I'm too much of a pansy to get something done that day and I just don't want to do it. Or it's a hard conversation that I have to have with somebody and I'm just worried about what the conflict is going to look like or maybe it's resources that I really wanted to spend somewhere else or I didn't have and so I don't move forward with what it is. So what I want to give you today throughout this sermon is faith facts. Faith facts that we can go on with our life and learn from this story of Saul. Faith fact number one for today is faith will always be tested with something bigger than what you want. Faith will always be tested with something bigger than what you want. It goes like this in our head. This time I'm going to, and then insert whatever that is. This time I'm going to stop doing this, or I'm going to accomplish this, or I'm going to get this done, or this time I'm never going to whatever it is. Insert whatever that is. I'm not going to do this again. Then the time comes and poof. All that willpower, all that desire, all that strength, all of the thoughts that you had that have built up to accomplish this thing, it goes away in a puff of smoke, and you are not going to get it done because the obstacle is too hard. And what happens during these times, instead of having victory in our life, instead of walking out what God has called us to walk out, whether it's something in Scripture or a, a biblical piece of wisdom that we learn, and we say we're going to do it, and we hype ourselves up, and we muster all of our willpower, and we muster, muster all of our self-motivation, and that's not enough for us. Because this thing that we are going to accomplish is bigger than us. Then where does that lead? That leads many times to depression. It leads to sulking. It leads to feeling sorry for ourselves. Excuses into why you've gotten into this state of defeat. 
You ever have that? Maybe it's a dream in your heart or something that God has told you to stop doing or to start doing over and over. And you've said, maybe at an altar call, or you've said to friends, I'm going to do it differently this time. But when the thing comes, you give in, you cave, you give up. And what happens at that point is what happens to any normal functioning human being. The anxiety, the depression, the feeling of just I'm never going to accomplish something, I'm never going to do anything, I'm never going to walk out what I'm supposed to walk out, I'm never going to be who I'm supposed to be, I'm never going to do what I'm called to do. These are normal thoughts that everybody has, but usually they come at a time when we psych ourselves up to do something and we go to do it, and then boom. We realize this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. And then, you know, the next day, maybe it's a little bit harder to get out of bed. Because you're just thinking about what you want to do, what you were supposed to do, but you know you're not going to do today. It says here that as Goliath came every day for 40 days and insulted them, that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. See, the thing about Saul is that Saul was never a successful king because he never fully trusted what God said. Saul was not really a successful king, not because he didn't have the ability, not because he didn't have the wherewithal, not because he didn't have the strength in human terms to do all this. It was simply because he never fully trusted what God told him to do, to do it. He never really trusted that God was with him. No matter what obstacle was coming, no matter what the battlefield looked like, no matter what was happening in his kingship or in his kingdom, as you read the story of Saul, you realize that it is a story of Saul never fully trusting God. And so later in the story, here comes David, this newly anointed king that really nobody knows that this has happened. He is very young, he's a teenager. He is sent to the battlefield. He's too young to be in the battle, so he's sent to the battlefield. Uh, with His father gives him some food and supplies, and he says, go give this to your brothers because they're in the battle. And so he brings some supplies from his dad to his brothers, and then he gets to the battlefield, and he sees Goliath insulting Israel, and he thinks, what in the world is going on here? And he looks at the Israelites around him and he says, how can you let this uncircumcised Philistine come against the living God? Who is allowing this to be part of the daily experience? He is upset, he is mortified, and he is angry. And so he looks around and he says, you know what? I got this. And so we read in verse 32 as David goes to Saul. And begins to tell Saul what he's going to do. It says in verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your, your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, 
I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So David comes to Saul and David says, look, I'm going to take care of this. I got this. And Saul, his first immediate response is, you know, you know, I don't know like what their mirror situation was like back then, but probably would have been like, have you looked in a mirror recently? Uh, you're a puny little teenager, and this is a nine-foot-something beast of a man. You know, and what's interesting is Saul, when they describe Saul in, in the beginning of him becoming king, they say Saul was, was tall. He was taller than all the other Israelites. It says that everybody else in Israel only came up to his shoulders. So Saul was a tall person, but when they describe David, they just say, you know, he had some good-looking features. David was not very tall. Uh, David was short, and here, specifically as he's young, he probably didn't even reach his full height as a man yet. But David, even though Saul tells David he can't do it, it's too hard, David says this, God has given me victory over lions and bears. He will give me victory here. Now let me tell you something. Uh, I was in Uganda a couple of months ago. Uh, I got to experience big cats up front. Uh, I got to experience what it was like for a lion. At one point while I was, while I was in Uganda, we were on the, this, it's an open safari, so you're in a Jeep that has no top to it. You know, it's just like you sitting in the wind and the lions, you know, just all out in the open. And so the safari guy said, because we're in a car, the lion will look at the car and they will see only one big animal. They won't see eight different people that are in the car that essentially would be prey to the lion. So they only see one big animal. So for the most part, the lions are scared of the car, but not really. They let the car pass. In their eye, it's something like an elephant. Something like that. Just like, big, leave me alone. We're fine. And so we're driving by the lions. We come across one morning. We're going out early in the morning. It was like 6 a.m. The sun was just rising. Uh, and we come out. And literally two minutes outside of where we were staying in these little huts, we come across a pride of lions, 13 lions laying in a pride. Uh, and it was one of the most beautiful sights, honestly, I'd ever seen. But the, one of the male lions that was uh, probably a two-year-old male that wasn't yet the head of the pride, but was almost, he was starting to get his mane, his beard, uh, looking really strong and good. Uh, he gets up and he walks away from the pride and he lays down somewhere else. So our, our safari guy takes us to drive right next to him. I kid you not, not I'm sitting in the car here. The lion is closer to me than this camera was. It was laying right there. Uh, and so we're all thinking, this is amazing. This is really cool, taking out our cameras, taking pictures. But then the lion notices us. And it's like, oh, okay, he's looking at us now. So he starts staring at us. I'm, I, I tell the guy, I was like, is it normal that they lock eyes with us like that? <laughs> and the guy's like, yeah, 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 we're fine. But then he gets up on his hinds, and you see, like, his, his, the razor blade uh, start to pop out. And then everybody in the car starts screaming, whoa, 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 what's going on? 
what's going on? And all I know is that the guy slams the pedal and we start driving forward. But let me tell you that those three seconds of my life when I saw that thing was about to pounce were one of the scariest three seconds that I have ever lived because I just thought, I'm going to die right now. <laughs> if that thing pounces, like, I have no hope. And so to think that David, this teenager, came and when he's saying that he fought a lion and he fought a bear and he prevailed, and he prevailed that's not, you know, like, that's not something to me. That, like, that's, that's something, something. Like, this dude fought a lion. Like, I have been in the presence of lions, and the last thing on my mind was, can I wrestle this bad boy? If you just gave me a big stick, I think I would be fine. No. Uh, I would be dead because I would just run, and then the lion would kill me. But David says, I have fought the lion. I have fought the bear. Guess what? If I can fight those two things, which I was not supposed to win, I can fight this Philistine. And so Saul says, okay, go fight him. Let's enjoy it. Faith fact number two. Faith comes from a long history of God's goodness. Faith comes from a long history of God's goodness. What's crazy is that reading this story alone, you would think that Saul never had God-given victories in his life. You would think even specifically that he never had God-given victories over the Philistines. But when you read his story, you read how God gave Saul victory in crazy scenarios where Saul should not have won, but God, it says, rushed upon him. He sent his spirit on him, and he was filled with strength and able to defeat the enemies of Israel. But you will read, when you read those stories, something else as well, that Saul constantly would take matters into his own hands as well. He would never fully obey God, and he would become impatient. He wouldn't wait for God's timing. He wouldn't wait for what God wanted him to do. And he would make adjustments so that it would work on his own terms. He would look at the, at the landscape with his worldly eyes and say, well, this doesn't make sense. We can't wait for God anymore. I'm going to have to do this on my own. And then he would finish the job always with his own strength. And he would get the job done. See, I, in my own life, I have seen God ask me to do things that were crazy, kind of like Saul. But what happens is, like for instance, in my business, when several times where God would say, Justin, I don't, you're, I don't want you to do sales. I'm going to take care of sales for you. If you know anything about how business works, uh, if you don't take care of sales, your business dies. This is just pure logic. This is how the world works. You know, companies that do really well, companies that don't have cash flow issues are companies that have, for the most part, strong sales departments. And so I remember God said, I'm going to be your salesman. Give just, uh, this is what I want you to take care of, Justin. I want you to take care of having a good product, make sure you have a great product, and do ministry. The time that you would have spent doing sales I want you to instead spend that time doing ministry and just let me take care of sales. Now, this may sound great to everybody. Oh, God's going to take care of his sales for him. Like, I wish God would do that for me. Mm -mm. Why? Because I cannot count anymore how many times 
where I was very close to going belly up, to saying, God, like, are we going to hit payroll this week? Uh, are we going to have enough to continue to go forward? If, if I call Chris, my older brother, Chris would be able to relay all the different stories where I told him, like, Chris, I don't know if I should have the company anymore. I think, I don't know if I should sell it. Um, I don't know if I should do this anymore. Because it's stressful when you're not doing sales and there's no sales coming in. And then you're looking, well, if there's no sales, there's no money. And if there's no money, there's no company. Right? But every time I would go back and I would pray and I would just, and I would hear God say this clearly. Justin, this is my company. This is not yours. You are my son and I'm going to take care of it for you. And I remember the first time where, man, I was, I was anxious. I was fidgety. I was waking up thinking, am I going to have to tell everybody today that we're not going to be able to hit payroll? Am I going to have to tell everybody today that, you know, we're, we're not going to have a business anymore? And the first time that I saw God come through, uh, I remember my uh, non-saved employee who uh, was close to me that I was sharing a lot of this stuff with. Uh, and the first time God came through and took care of the sales, I, this person called me out of the blue that I hadn't talked to for three months. I thought it was a dead lead uh, and that they weren't going to go with. Literally called me and were like, Justin, I'm ready to go. Where do I deposit the money? Uh, and I remember me and, and uh, this guy were talking just like, he was like, man, God is real. And I'm like, bro, if you believe God is real, you don't know what I'm feeling <laughs> right now. And I remember the first time that happened, you would think, like, okay, I'm good now, like, if that happens again. But the second time, I remember feeling anxious. I remember feeling stressed. I remember feeling like, God, what's going to happen now? And yet God came through again. And then the third time, God came through again. And, and what happened was I started to get a history of God's faithfulness in this area. And so when things became bad and I would go and pray and God would say, don't worry about it, Justin, I got it. Then I would start remembering, well, if you had it last time, then you're going to have it this time. And if you've had it the time before that, then you surely will have it this time. And if you've had it that time again, then yes, you've done it those times, you will do it again. See, when you have a history of God's faithfulness in your life, then when things come your way where everybody else would be like, you should be going crazy right now. You should be going nuts. You, th there's no way that you should be acting normal. To me, I start thinking, well, I don't care about that anymore because I know God has me. He's had me before. He will have me now. If he says he is going to take care of it, he is going to take care of it. This journey actually goes back to when I was 16 years old. I remember this story while I was preparing the sermon where at Resurrection at my old church, we used to do these pledges every year for the building fund or whatever would happen uh, during the year that they wanted to kind of have a, a campaign for. And they would be financial pledges to help take care of for that year what we wanted to accomplish as a church. And so I remember as a 16-year-old, I was a busboy, worst job in the world, always give good tips because, man, I hated that job. Uh, it was awful. Uh, and if you like being a waiter and serving, like that is a special anointing on your life. Uh, that is not a, a gift that God had given me. But I started working when I was 14 because my allowance was $5 a week, and that doesn't cut it as a 14-year-old. Uh, and so I got a job, and I was a busboy, and I remember 
uh, we were doing our pledges for the new year, and God had put it on my heart to pledge $600 uh, for the year. Now, when I looked at how much I made for the year, I worked Friday nights, sometimes on Saturdays. That was about 50% of what I would make as a 16-year-old uh, for the year. Uh, but I felt like I was saying, like, Justin, you need to learn at this age to put money first in your, uh, to put money first, to put God first and money not first. That was what I was thinking as a 16-year-old. Money first, money first. That's how I sounded as a 16-year-old in case you wondered. You thought I had some high pitches now, just you didn't meet me back then. Uh, and so then I remember a guest speaker had come right after I had pledged this, and the guest speaker uh, I don't know if you've ever been in old school Pentecostal churches, but guest speaker is like, who is going to stand up right now and pledge some money to the church? And you have people standing up like 5,000, 1,000, 10,000, you know, and, and everybody's getting crazy with it. Um, and so then I remember specifically God was like, Justin, I want you to pledge another 600. And I was like, ha, ha, that's a good joke, God. You mean you wanted me to pledge 600? Don't you remember? I already did that. <laughs> I already did that, uh, so maybe you want me to reaffirm my $600 pledge in front of everybody? Just let the whole congregation know that I'm giving $600, you know, to the pledge this year. Uh, and God was like, no, you already pledged 600 I want you to pledge another $600. Uh, and I'm like, God, that's 100% of what I'm going to make this year. I can't live off $5 a week. You know how it is out there. And, and I don't know if anybody talks to God like this, but this is my internal dialogue with God at this age. Um, and, and so God was like, no, I want you to do it. So I was like, I, I was, I'll be honest. I was like, Lord, you better make me rich when I get older. <laughs> and so I stood up and I said $600. And I was like, man, I thought I'd feel good about saying this. But I sat down pretty bummed. Uh, and this was at a, an anniversary of the church. We had it on a Saturday night. And so Sunday, uh, the guest speaker that was there on Saturday came on Sunday, and he was preaching. Uh, and at the end of the sermon, he said, where is that young kid yesterday that pledged $600? And I was like, I think that was me. That was me. And he said, you know, God spoke to me this morning to write you a check for $600 to help you to fulfill that pledge. And the thing is, like, one, I would have never saw that coming in a million years. Like, God knew what he was setting up. But in the natural, that looked crazy. But when you start to see God come through in some smaller ways at, at a $600 value as a 16-year-old, that, you know, I look back at that now and think, you know, that wasn't much. But to me back then, God was teaching me something, that he is going to be faithful and that as I get older, he's going to need me to remember the faithfulness that he has had in my life because there's going to be obstacles that come that are bigger than my wallet every single year. And he is going to remind me, Justin, I was faithful when you were 16. I was faithful when you were 20. I was faithful when you were 22. I was faithful when you were 20. I was faithful when you were 30. Remember that I am a faithful God. Just obey me. And I will take care of the rest. But what happens is when we, when we don't listen to God, though, and we say, well, worldly wisdom says I need to do sales to make sales, God. Well, worldly wisdom says I, I can't give away all that I'm going to make this year. I can't listen to you. This doesn't make sense. Then we take it into our own hands. And then what happens is we never get to see God's faithfulness. 
Because a little bit of waiting and a little bit of me isn't truly seeing God come through 100%. And so then we get a different lineage of faith in our life. We think God is going to take care of it if I help him a little bit. So let me keep on helping God out a little bit. So that I can make sure that what God spoke to me I can accomplish. See what Saul does here is he says first to David go and the Lord be with you. But then he does this in verse 38. It says then Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested it. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. See, Saul, he had a lineage of obeying God on his terms. And so even though he told David, go and the Lord be with you, he says, go and the Lord be with you, but also let my armor be with you. Because you are not going to be able to accomplish this just with the power of the Lord. What you need is you need some material things. My armor has been handy to me in the past. My army armor will be handy to you now. Now, if we're looking at this in human terms, Saul is not crazy. This teenager, this puny little kid, is about to go fight a giant with no armor, with no sword. What world are we living in? But if you remember, Saul was taller than everybody. He puts on this armor on David. It did not fit. David tries leaving Saul's presence. He's like, homie, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. So he takes it off. Because Saul had this experience that God will do what he wants as long as I help him on my terms. David had this experience of God will do what he wants no matter what he wants, whenever he wants. See, Saul trusted in earthly things. He trusted in his armor. He trusted in his wisdom. He trusted in his own action. The problem with that is that your wisdom, your armor, and your action will always meet something that is bigger, that is better, and that is smarter. And when it meets something that is bigger, that is better, that is smarter, in that moment, you are screwed. Because in that moment, you will realize, my armor will not handle this situation. My smarts will not handle this situation. My action will not be able to handle this situation. And then you get in the place that Saul got. Which was for 40 days, he let that Philistine come out every morning and mock him, mock God, and mock Israel. And he realized that his strength, his armor, his sword, and his army, which were good enough for him in the past, were not good enough for him now. Because in the past, he relied on his strength. He did not rely on the strength of God. And so faith fact number three, your faith will only rise to the level of strength that the object of your faith is in. If the object of your faith is armor, like Saul, then he would look at Goliath and say, well, I can't win because my armor isn't good enough for that. If the object of your faith is your intelligence, 
then something, someone smarter will come along, and then you will look at that and say, well, my intelligence isn't good enough to handle this situation. But if the object of your faith is in God, then Saul would have looked at Goliath and thought, yeah, that's not hard for God. If the object of Saul's faith was in the Lord of armies, was in the Lord of hosts, was in Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, then he would have looked at Goliath and said, you are puny in the eyes of God. Don't you know he created the mountains that we are on and the valley that we are going to fight in? He created the, the, the copper and the bronze that we use. He created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the sun, and the moon. You are nothing for him. But instead, Saul looked at his armor, which was the object of his faith, and he said, my armor will not win in this situation Therefore, I am defeated. What brings you fear, if lost, reveals the object that your faith is in. Is it your job? Is it your smartphone? Is it your girlfriend? Is it your boyfriend? Is it your skills? Is it your beauty? Is it your intelligence? All of those things can and will be matched by something too strong, Something too pretty, someone too smart, someone much nicer, someone much better than you. And that is where God is asking you to change the object of your faith from an earthly subject to a heavenly one. When David goes out to battle with his sling and his stone, the Philistines see with worldly eyes this Goliath man. And he responds to David, and I love this response, and then David's response to him. In verse 43, it says, And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Listen to this. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." See, David says, you have a sword and a spear, but homie, I got God, and God is way bigger than your spear. He's way bigger than your sword. He didn't say, I have a sling and a rock, because he knew his faith wasn't in his aim. He knew his faith wasn't in his staff. He knew it wasn't in that rock and that sling. He knew where his faith lied. It was in the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. God was the object of his faith, not his material possession. See, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brother and sister, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul came to a situation that he said, this is beyond us. This is beyond me. We are going to die. We are despair. We are tired. We are coming to our end. But he says this after, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. See, Paul says we went into a situation that we were surely going to die in. And we realized we didn't have the strength. We didn't have the capacity. We weren't going to make it through this. But then he says, but then we realized that we serve a God. That if we were to die, guess what? We serve a God who raises the dead. So even if we were to die, guess what? We know the one who raises the dead, who has defeated death, who can say, have life. And he has delivered us before. He will deliver us. And guess what? He will deliver us again. So my hope is not in my situation. My hope is not in my strength. My hope is not in my beauty, in my intelligence, in my job, in my paycheck. My hope relies firmly in one thing, and that is the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus Christ, who died, but then rose from again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and then sent his spirit to be among us. See, are you willing to put your faith and your hope in Christ? To obey him no matter where it takes you. To trust him no matter how bad it looks in your life. For as David said, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Church, we need to not forget where our victory lies. It doesn't rely and our employer who pays our check. It doesn't rely in our intelligence because we can run circles around people mentally. It doesn't rely in our beauty if that's how we have made it. It doesn't rely anywhere in ourselves, in external situations, and the things that we have made war with before. It does not lie in that. But let me tell you, when it is relying on that, God will put you in a situation that will test what object your faith is in. And that is an opportunity for us to say, God, I'm not putting my faith in the situation, in the world, in my bank account, in my friends, in my family. I'm not putting my faith in that. But I am going to direct my hope. I'm going to direct my faith. I'm going to direct all that I am to you. Because this is not big enough for you. This is not too big. This is not too strong. This is not too hard. This is not too wise. You are greater. You are victory. Can you stand with me?